the little wins are really, really important because it gives you a sense of power that you're not a victim. You can come together and fight for something. 12 Hills is big in my mind. And I, you know, before that I was working in communities were just getting a sidewalk in front of the school. So your kids didn't show up to school covered in mud was a huge win and a sense of hmm. power for that community and really can transform people's willingness to continue to improve their communities, improve themselves and have a voice. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. I began my podcasting journey a little over a year ago with the episode that you'll hear today, and it still brings a big smile to my face. My very first guest, Jennifer Touche, is an amazing exemplar for taking a stand, and I invite you to listen from within that context. You may also want to listen to episode 21, which is a mini episode focused on owning your value. The very first requirement for being able to claim the value that you bring to the world is to know what you stand for. Jennifer clearly and authentically articulates the purpose, vision, and values of the efforts she led in our community. Also note that she speaks of the value of staying both committed and flexible for the long term. I want to start by just giving a general overview, kind of a timeline of 12 Hills, and then I want you to correct anything I have to say and then uh, give me some more details. So 12 Hills is a uh, is on what was originally a 20-acre plot of land, and in the 1950s, a large apartment complex took over most of the 20 acres. It was a thriving and really nice a set of apartments. Uh, there were several pools and there was a nearby creek where kids uh, played and learned to explore. But by the 1970s, the apartments fell into disrepair. There were fires, crime, drug dealing was common. And eventually the landowner defaulted on the loan and the city of Dallas took possession of the land. In 1992, the apartments were completely torn down, and for several years, it was just sort of a wild place, uh, but it was a place where kids, again, were out exploring. It was just a big open space, and in some of the flatter uh, places or the flatter areas, you, you would find people throwing frisbees, playing soccer, maybe putting down a, a picnic blanket, catching butterflies, all the things that people do when there's a a nice piece of land in the middle of uh, kind of the urban area. Because it was so beautiful, it attracted a lot of attention from developers. And there was a lot of talk about actually putting a, a gated high-end community 
in that space. And many of the local residents, the neighbors, uh, weren't happy about that. They thought it would be divisive and it would take away the area where their kids were playing. So in 1999, there was a community meeting that was held in the local elementary school cafeteria. You were there and that's where your story begins. Uh, did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. Um, I was not there for all of that history, but that's my understanding of what had happened there on the property. The only thing I would add to the story is just the name 12 Hills. It's just uh, to be some descriptive of it is it has these beautiful hills and, you know, it, it's a really sort of special ecosystem as well that really came to life when it was vacant <laughs> for all those years. Yeah, thank you. It, this is a part of Dallas where it's maybe the only part of Dallas where we actually have a very interesting topography, lots of hills and cliffs and everything. That's the name Oak Cliff. But this piece of land was actually or is indicative of that topography. So you were at this meeting and that's where your story begins or your involvement. And, and I'm wondering what happened there and what was compelling for you? Because my recollection or my story is that this meeting kind of launched your involvement in basically saving this piece it did, of land. Yeah. So it was a big community meeting. I had just taken uh, the last month off of my pregnancy. I was a community organizer at the time in Fort Worth. And um, so, of course, I'm going to go to all the community meetings in my own community. And um, our city council person had called a community meeting. My recollection is there were at least 100 or more people that showed up. And it appeared at that meeting that she was appointing a committee of people to figure out, <laughs> I'm putting air quotes, you can't see that on the radio, to figure out what we were going to do with this very beautiful and valuable piece of property. And the committee had already been appointed and it was definitely seen by the group that was there at the meeting, at least the group that I was paying attention to as kind of stacked with people who definitely already had decided it needed to be developed and with high end housing and, you know, that that would bring a lot of economic benefit to the community. And so, so that sense of this has already been decided for us was really palpable to me at that meeting. And I'm really grateful that people were saying things, but in particular, Bibi Gomez, who was maybe even still, she and her husband, Felipe, um, are members of St. Cecilia Catholic Church, which borders the property and lead the Girl Scout troops and the Boy Scouts and had actually been using the land for different things. She raised her hands and really said, what about our kids? You know, if you wall this off and take all of this and what about our kids? What about something for the community? Um, something that benefits all of us that are here. And at the time, there were even more apartments bordering 12 Hills. So, of course, everybody living in those apartments, they don't have yards. They don't have an easy place to go outside. And, and that's how that property was being used. And, and there were a couple of other sentiments like that that were expressed during the meeting. But in particular, Bibi spoke so passionately and it was clear 
that she had a bigger vision for who should benefit from from really this this jewel that was in our community. So afterwards, I connected with her and just related to what she had to say. And I had some experience as a community organizer personally and asked her if she wanted to work together to try and bring the community voice to what's really going to happen. And she wanted to. And and then um, I was there with another friend of mine, Beth Loveridge, who um, also felt that way. And she's is really into the environment and knew all that was happening there ecologically and with the animals and the birds and the creek. So she had that interest in mind. And there were a number of other people who sort of gathered after that meeting to start talking about um, a broader vision that included our voices as members of the community. Yeah, so this is wonderful. I didn't I didn't have all of that detail before about how you all just, it sounds really organic that the conversations got started. And I'm wondering what, you know, in those early days, what was the vision? Uh, What was the compelling vision that kind of held you all together that inspired you to continue to take these steps and move, move forward with your own plan, with your own vision? Well, it's interesting because in the beginning the vision was something for the community and truly nothing more than that. And that's what held us together. We wanted to bring the community together. And so we actually spent a lot of time, we meaning, I don't know, there were maybe eight or 10 of us in the very beginning, um, spent a lot of time convening the community and listening to see what that vision would be. We knew that there was something there. We knew that it was a valuable piece of property and didn't want to just hand it over to be developed and have, you know, whatever, the 20 people who got to live there um, have it. And so the vision was the community voice. And through lots of meetings and conversations and talking to people and like petitions. And I mean, I can't go into all of the details of how we got that vision. I mean, we had meetings at St. Cecilia Catholic Church. We had meetings at Rosemont. We had meetings in people's homes. We went to neighborhood association meetings. Um, And we may get to this later, but we also invited um, our representative for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, his urban biologist, to come and say, what could the vision be here from that perspective, from the urban biologist perspective? So the vision came together, but the driving vision was something for the community that we could benefit from, that the kids could experience, that we could steward, that protected some of the nature that was there and the wildlife. Um, and it became clear that there was a lot that the community could do to take care of this piece of property, to continue to restore it to a natural state, that there were benefits for the environment, benefits for the community, benefits for the teachers and educators who were right around there. So what I would say is that what held us together was a community voice. It emerged naturally. One of the things in our prior conversation that you just brought up again here was the amount of listening that you did. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that, because what I'm hearing here, too, is that 
you didn't have a particular agenda that you were pushing, except that it was something for the community and that you let the community kind of form what what that would be. So say something about about the listening aspect of how this came together. Yeah. So one of my core beliefs is that local communities that are closest to problems are also closest to solutions and people in Oak Cliff in particular, and maybe I think all over, but definitely I knew in Oak Cliff, there's a lot of ownership of that community. There's people who have lived there for a long time. People feel connected to it. There is a sense of community there. And so I firmly believe that the community can come up with what's best best for itself. I kind of believe that in general, that the communities that live and work and play where they are that are closest to things can know also how to make it better. And, and so that, that was my approach. That's what I brought to our, our group and like attracts like, I guess, because the other people that were attracted to working with each other were all about listening and really believing that at the end of the day, the community would come up with the best solution. And I believe it did. Another thing that's, that stood out to me from our, our first conversation was the, the amount of diversity that you all had in these meetings. Yes. I mean, you can't say the community and have it be, you know, the five people who represent me. Oak Cliff is is a diverse community. And that was something that everybody was really pretty committed to that was working with the 12 Hills group. In particular, having BB and Felipe as community leaders through St. Cecilia, which is a, a really big community institution. I mean, there there are community institutions that people trust and go to. Um, and a lot of times they're really segregated from each other, like certain group, you know, people go to Catholic church at this St. Cecilia and that's one demographic and everybody else goes to the Kessler Park United Methodist and that's another demographic. But those institutions are there and we were really intentional about finding leaders within those institutions that were trusted by the diverse communities that live in Oak Cliff to come together and making sure that we weren't leaving anyone out. And and we had meetings in Spanish, if that is what we needed to do. And um, we're just intentional about um, reaching out to different groups and making our approach accessible to people. So There's certain kinds of meetings where people feel safe going to because they're used to going to those kinds of meetings. There's other places where you can make where you can meet and hold meetings where people feel comfortable going there. You can knock on doors. So we were intentional about how we were gathering those voices and listening to make sure that um, to the extent that we could, we were, were kind of digging into the cracks and crevices of where people were. Yeah, so lots of different stakeholders here. And it sounds like that you engaged all of them. And I'm going to jump forward to at least part of the solution because, you know, spoiler alert, obviously something happened because we have this beautiful space at the end of my street here. But there was 20 acres and you all had to work with the city developers. There was a a lot of other stakeholders. Yes in the mix as well, other than just the community. 
So what approach did you take? And I think it was about five and a half years, Jennifer, that it took for this from the first community meeting to what we have here? I think so. I, I have it in my mind that it was four, but maybe it was five and a half. Maybe it's because I left after four years, so it was still happening. Mm, but okay. uh, So, yes, there's always stakeholders beyond just who you're talking to. And one of the things that I learned as a community organizer was always to do a power analysis. And I don't think we talked about this before. That's really just a fancy way of saying who are all the stakeholders? Who can make decisions? Who cares about what happens to this property? Who's going to make money off of it or not? Who has something to win or lose about the outcome of this? And take a step back to really figure out who are all the stakeholders? Who has the power? Who may lose power? And, and, and look at all of that. And so it was very clear that because this was a property that was on the tax rolls, actually county and city, um, because there were back taxes, oh, that there was the county, there was the city. Of course, we had elections in the middle of this for city council people who, you know, they're looking at their neighborhood and what they're going to do or not do for the neighborhood if they want to get elected to city council. We had, of course, developers, um, neighborhood developers, but still developers, potentially outside developers. Um, you have the school district. Um, and then, of course, you have all the neighbors that live live around there. Um, so that was a big part of how we figured out what we needed to do was, was not being myopic and what we wanted, but being really understanding the way things work. If you want to get a sidewalk in your neighborhood, if you want to get anything done, um, you have to look at all the different factors that will affect your ability as a person or as a group to get that done. And the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, go in blind. People get clobbered <laughs> because if you don't look at the power structure, you know, if you've got money and power, you're going to win. And so the only way to counterbalance that is to have a lot of people and to understand how things work and understand that you really have to go in with your eyes wide open and not uh, be naive about people maybe pushing back. People have pushed back on grassroots communities in all of history, especially when there's money involved. And that's just the reality. Yeah. And when we spoke, you talked about how you see all of those different stakeholders. Talk a little bit about the no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. Yes. So that is politics in the positive way. We're so entrenched now in our country. So it's hard for me to talk about it without, you know, outside of you know, 10 years ago or whatever the context was longer than that. So something that we ascribe to as a group and that, that I ascribe to personally was the idea of negotiating. And just because someone was against your project at one point, but now they're for it, as you said in, earlier in the podcast, originally, we did ultimately have a fully developed professional 
rendering for a 20 acre urban nature center. I mean, one of our neighbors, Bill, oh, I feel terrible. I can't remember his last name right now. <laughs> It'll come to me. He, he actually, he's a landscape designer. We had a fully rendered professional rendering for all 20 acres, which, which the community got behind. And that once we got all the feedback, we kind of knew what we wanted to do. We had drawings of it and we're going forth with that plan. And it became clear that the school district was now very interested in the property and that there were people in the neighborhood and city council or mayor that really were going to push for some housing on the property. And so we did have to go back and change our plan and negotiate with our city government, the school district, developers to come up with a different vision. And I mean, 12 Hills today is just over five acres. And if we had been unwilling to walk away from that original, we didn't give up too quickly, but there were some people that felt like we gave, we gave up too much. But at, at that point, it felt like it was going to be, if we fought for all, we were going to get nothing. And we wanted something. And we knew if we didn't consider anyone a permanent enemy or a permanent ally, that we could still be at the table and not dig our heels in around our vision or around who we're going to talk to or who we're not going to talk to in this situation. Yeah. You said earlier that win doesn't mean winner take all. And I, I, I find that inspiring and very insightful that, you know, not to get too dug in and that we can still win even if we didn't get the original vision. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like we were so dug into getting something that we were not going to lose. So there was a <laughs> level of persistence and tenacity and just we were going to keep fighting, 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 fighting that core group. And it was a fight every single minute. I mean, there were threats, not for our lives, but you better stop coming to these meetings and you all don't understand what's best for the community. And, you know, no one's ever going to want to come and develop down here and all the things that you hear. But there was that that core group that was sort of like a terrier, like, we're going to get something. I mean, <laughs> we're going to get something. So we did have to hold on to that <laughs> part. And I think that is what drove us to not just throw our hands up and say, all right, we lost. So we felt happy. Maybe it was a, maybe some people felt like we got a crumb. But based on the way you described your experience of it, and I've been back there and I see all that is happening there now and how much the community owns it and loves it. I don't think we got a crumb. I think I, I don't think so either. <laughs> it felt like a crumb a little bit, but we didn't care. We were getting something. That period of time, four years, five and a half years, whatever it is, that's a, a long time, it seems, to keep people fully engaged in the way that they needed to be in order to bring this to fruition. What's the secret sauce of keeping people engaged? Well, I think our connections to each other, we really liked each other. And we were none of us knew each other before. This was not a group of friends doing this for self-interest or for our own kids or something like that. 
So there was like friends in that old, like sort of Greek way, <laughs> like there, there's that Greek word agape. I think mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there, there was that connection with each other. We felt committed to each other and committed to the community responsible for making something happen. That's part of it. And then I was someone and, and maybe a few others. I don't know if I was the only one. You'd have to ask them. I I just knew we could get something. I knew if we kept fighting, we could make something happen. I just believed in that. And so I think for a lot of people involved, it was their first time getting involved in a community initiative in kind of a political initiative and in this type of engagement with the city and the county and all that was involved. And so I think it was a little scary for a lot of people who definitely did not think we were going to win or get anything in the end. But there were a number of us that just knew if we kept, we, we could wear them down. Yeah. And that that voice of hope, you know, just having, just having hope um, all the time. I wonder, you know, if this were happening today, what it would be like. Um, I, I often wonder things can happen so quickly now, technically that I sometimes wonder if we're losing our ability to be patient and this didn't happen overnight. I mean, you all had to have patience and, keep fighting, keep the vision in front of you. And I think it helped a lot that you had the background in knowing that. And so it feels important to to have someone on the team that knows, that can see into the future and can even tell people, this is going to be a long fight. There's going to be some ups and downs. We may not get everything that we want, but we're going to get something. Yeah, it, It feels important to have that voice there. It is. It really is. And back when I had, you know, this was pretty early on in my career, personally, um, but I had been a community organizer for just over five years before I started 12 Hills. And one of the first fights I was in as a community organizer, I was not living in that community or a stakeholder. I was being paid to help develop the leadership in that community. We were fighting for funding from the city of Dallas for after school programs to extend the learning and, you know, for all kinds of things. And it was really within the first six months. um, And I wasn't even a stakeholder. It was not my kids who were falling behind in school and had nowhere to go and no recreation center and no library and all of that. And we lost. (laughs) And Mm. it was, it was like a five or six hour school board meeting and it was a swing vote. And the person we thought we had on our side voted against us really late at night. And everybody was there with their little kids and um, and just went home devastated, everybody. And my boss, who was a Catholic nun, and I'm Jewish, <laughs> um, but she had been around the block. She had been, you know, she she had been you know, organizing farm workers in the 60s and 70s, you know, she, she told us organizers, you know, she had been around the block. And she said, you think you're upset, because you lost your first fight as a community organizer. It's not even your kids. Don't go home and cry, come in earlier tomorrow, and get your boxing gloves on. This is a long battle. 
And the people you're working with have been knocked down many, many times, but we can win fights. So come back. And then after five years of organizing, I saw the small wins, things like getting a sidewalk or finally getting the city to put a, a little library in the neighborhood, small wins. And I was able to experience those along with some really horrifying losses. Whether she was actually a mentor or not, uh, she really stands out in your memory as someone who set a context for you and was inspiring and, and a dose of reality. Like, yeah, we don't give up yeah. after one try. If this is important, you'll come back. And there's also this sense of, for the sake of what? Am, am I fighting for this? And, and you don't want to lose sight of that either. As long as you don't lose sight of what the bigger picture is, the little wins count. They're huge. The little wins are really, really important because it gives you a sense of power that you can, that you're not a victim. You can come together and fight for something. 12 Hills is big in my mind. And I, you know, before that I was working in communities were just getting a sidewalk in front of the school. So your kids didn't show up to school covered in mud was a huge win and a sense of hmm. power for that community and really can transform people's willingness to continue to improve their communities, improve themselves and have a voice. So let, let's jump forward in time now. What we have today is a little over five acres of that, that's 12 Hills Nature Center. We also have a five acre gated community beautiful homes with that very natural landscaping. Interestingly enough, there's actually a gate that goes mm -hmm. from 12 Hills into that neighborhood. And I go through that gate regularly when I'm on my walks. I will go through 12 Hills, go through the gate, and then out into, you know, the larger Oak Cliff neighborhoods through the golf course and everything like that. On my I want to interrupt you on okay. that to tell you we fought for that gate. <laughs> okay. That gate was a big conversation. Do not cut off the neighborhood. Oh. We need a gate. We need a walkway. We need an easement. This has to be connected. We had to fight for well, that. Well, and it is, and it seems to be working. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a beautiful yeah. neighborhood to walk through. <laughs> so even though it's a gated community, like to drive your car through, there's a gate there. But you can go through the gate, walk through the community, and they have a little, uh, a smaller gate that's a, just a people gate that you can get out and get out into the, you know, onto the main street. Yeah. Well, you know, that just warms my heart <laughs> because <laughs> it seemed like such a small thing but as you can hear, everything was so intentional. And so we gave up the five acres to a gated community. But how can we still connect it to the community? How can we send the message that this is still part of the community, that the people who live there are part of the community, that the community isn't going to get cut off? And I'm so glad to hear that that's working. Yeah, it, it's working. And, and then on the other 10 acres, the local school, uh, Rosemont Elementary, built a, a lower campus. So the, the upper campus is the original school right around the corner from me. And then Rosemont has its lower campus. 
that also has some fields and a soccer field that are all part of DISD, Dallas Independent School District. That also, I think, has a gate, although I don't know how often they use that. But it's also so much fun for me. I'll Sometimes I'll go through the nature center during the middle of the day to take a break and the kids are just out there roaring and playing. And so it's really a nice thing there too, for me to walk out my door and hear, hear the kids playing. So ultimately that's what we ended up with and beautiful, beautiful opening to this space that, and there was fundraising that had to happen once it was decided, I guess, that the land would be parsed out this way. You had to raise money to actually purchase the land because it wasn't given, just given. So you raise money to purchase the land and to build this, what I say is a magical entrance to the space. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, the property went up for auction, nail-biting experience for us. (laughs) Um, And the developer purchased all 10 acres, the school district had already sealed their deal for their 10 acres. And we had, we had made a deal with the developer that we thought was going to win the auction. We did some work on the back end to get it zoned in our favor um, on the five acres. And so we had to purchase five acres from him at a, a lower than market rate value, but we did have to purchase that. And we had embarked on another community effort. We knew we weren't going to build any buildings on the property, like a recreation center or anything like that, but we wanted an entrance and we wanted a space to tell the story, to welcome people, to make it feel permanent. <laughs> and so we we did um, invite people in the community to help design a front entrance and another neighborhood um leader and mom, Carolyn Perna, won that design. And and we got a lot of input and feedback about what needed to be in the front entrance um, and had uh, beautiful renderings and which we needed to go fundraise for it. Um, So we got all of our ducks in a row and went out into the community to raise the dollars for that front entrance and also to purchase the property. and so that was a little bit of, um, I'll say I was, I was trying to remember kind of how it all got started. But one thing that was really helpful is there was um, one of our neighbors who, who was involved with us. His family had a private family foundation and they made a lead gift. Um, I don't even remember the amount. Someone else would or I could pull up a spreadsheet. But they made a lead gift because... And we needed, we needed some, we knew we were going to need outside funding beyond just the neighborhood. And we knew we could raise some money in the neighborhood, but not all of it. It was quite a bit. So in order for us to get outside funding, and we had already formed as a 501c3, we had um, actually Cindy Spence, who lives in the neighborhood, paid, uh, I'll never forget that. She, she paid the $500 <laughs> IRS fee for us to become a nonprofit. That was one of the ways that she contributed. Um, but at this point, you know, we were going to have to raise a lot more money. So we got a seed gift um, from that family foundation. 
And then um, some of our neighbors started an annual fundraiser, which I think is still mm-hmm, going on mm-hmm, it is. Um, to raise some community dollars. And then we just started knocking on doors, talking to local businesses, talking to people. We had, I don't know if you've ever seen the painting of our founder's tree. I believe so. I think it's on the some note cards that go out. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a local artist, Millie Behar, who has since moved. She is a painter and she made a beautiful painting of what we call our founder's tree during sunset. And we had an auction and then also recreated that on these canvases and sold them. So we did a lot of sort of grassroots fundraising and then also started writing for grants. We had a couple of people, myself and Karen Cameron and others who had some experience with just basic grant writing and fundraising, um, which was fortunate. And we just started talking to funders. We brought our passion. We brought our plans. We brought really good writing. That's one of the skills. You know, I have two degrees in history, which like, okay, what are you going to do with that? Um, one of them is an oral history. So you can see how that right. helps <laughs> because I have an oral his- history degree. And the other one is, you know, you have to do a lot of writing. <laughs> and so we, that good writing helps when you're applying for grants. So we just started knocking on doors and we're fortunate that we got some lead gifts. And then, you know, once, once people see other people are funding it and it truly is a beautiful entrance and a beautiful community asset. And and it was clear that this was, you know, a, a really great project to fund. So we just stayed with it to raise the money. We did not raise all the money we wanted to raise for some other projects, which have happened a little bit over the years. Just again, that not taking a, a, a winner take all kind of thing. We, you know, had to scale back some things. We had to prioritize what we wanted to raise money for. There were lots of conversations about, do we need a staff person or not? And what do we really need the money for? Um, but we, we felt really committed to getting that front entrance funded. Yeah, so wrapping up here, part of that front entrance, which also just blew me away when I first walked in. So I encourage anyone who's listening here and who hasn't already been to 12 Hills to to, to look online and just see some of the, the photos. But it's a really nice, like a hallway, like you, you walk through this entrance and it's, it's almost like a hallway. And then right at the end of the entrance, there's a big stone with an inscription that you and another uh, local resident wrote. And I wonder if in closing, you will read that to us. Um, I think both of those words are probably how Miss Paula and I talked about it is um, an invitation and an invocation. Um, You know, it's a poem that we wrote together, um, but we, we felt like we wanted to invite people to experience 12 Hills if they sat for a minute to read this the way that we did something we didn't talk about earlier, but you'll hear in what we wrote is, and this is kind of really getting out there. We felt like the land was talking to us. Really. It wasn't just the community. Um, It felt like a sacred space. It felt um, 
connected to the actual land as well, especially strongly for several people involved in the effort. It doesn't feel out there at all. I, I experienced that when I walked through. And again, the way that the entrance was created, you really feel like you're entering something special. So go ahead and um, if you would, in closing, read the poem that you and Paula Craig wrote together. This piece of land called out to the neighbors, save me, restore me, and sit with me in wonder. And we did, together. These arms of rock will welcome you to come inside and conspire with nature to heal yourself and the world around you. Walk and learn, observe and feel, listen, listen closely. This sacred place has a strong, clear voice. Nature speaks to each of us, nurtures us and teaches. We are privileged to be the steward. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world.